Welcome to the Money Advantage Podcast, empowering business owners with the permission to think differently about money so that you can consciously choose to live a meaningful and fulfilled life now. Our passion is making money simple, fun, and doable, helping you feel great about your money and getting your money working for you so you can thrive. Hey, guess what? We are doing something new and we'd love for you to be a part of it. Do you have burning questions about anything financial that you wish you could have a conversation with us directly about, and you'd love to have them answered on the podcast? We've made it super simple for you to ask your questions in a voicemail or an email so that we can answer them live on the show. Go to themoneyadvantage.com and click the link at the top right-hand corner that says, send us a voicemail. You can literally record right on your desktop or on your cell phone that will send us a voicemail right away and we'll be able to include your question on the show. Or if you prefer, email us at hello at themoneyadvantage.com with ask us anything in the subject line. We love answering your questions and it's literally the thing that gives us the most energy to be able to provide you the clarity you need to make decisions and move forward. So please do us the honor of sharing your questions. Now, back to the show. All right, good morning and welcome back to the Money Advantage podcast. This is Rachel Marshall, your co-host along with Bruce Wayner, and we have a special guest with us today. We're talking with Dave Chase of Health Rosetta, and we're talking about that rising healthcare costs and how to have a solution in this particular industry, in this field, in this area of our life that can feel really frustrating. So if you're concerned about ballooning costs, looking at your health insurance, looking at the cost of healthcare itself, looking what that's doing to your bottom line, this is the show that you really want to tune into. We're talking about how to solve healthcare costs with a completely transformative mindset and, and concept today. So Dave Chase, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me on and looking, I'm really looking forward to the chat. Excellent. Well, let's just share a little bit about Dave before we get started. Now, Dave Chase leads the vision for Health Rosetta, and really his goal is to empower community-owned health plans. And so we're going to talk today about that. He has also had a TED Talk, which I had the pleasure of listening to, and you've also written a best-selling book. You've been a uh, on Fox, and you are doing a lot of work in the consulting area for healthcare costs. And so I would love to be able to let you share that. I also want to point out what's really interesting. You've done some work that with a company that turned into WebMD and we're able to sell that as well. So probably our audience would be familiar with that as we probably have all Googled our symptoms at one point or other, and that all comes back to you. Um, Also outside of that, you are an oxygen fueled mountain athlete, which I'm very curious about. Um, And you have done quite a bit of running. I will let you talk about that, but you are a very awesome runner with the 800 meter and, and um, fast races. And you are really looking to be a servant leader to 4 million lives. So I love, love where you are coming from. So Dave, can you tell us a little bit about you and what led you into this healthcare space? Yeah, I mean, I'd been in healthcare, uh, had a few roles. I started my career in what's now uh, Accenture um, in hospitals you know, working inside off in their billing department. And then I went and founded what's today's Microsoft's uh, $3 billion healthcare business, um, which a lot of people aren't even aware of no. how big their businesses on that. And then, as you mentioned, uh, I started a company that ultimately uh, was acquired by WebMD. 
But the real pivotal uh, moment for me uh, was, unfortunately, by the time I was 40, I'd had 10 friends my age or younger die. And obviously, all of those are gut punches. But mm. the last one was particularly rough. It was a friend that she'd had a similar career tra trajectory to me, done the right things, done quite well. And uh, she ended up getting diagnosed with cancer, actually misdiagnosed with cancer. And, you know, to make a long story short, you know, that led to the wrong care plan. And ultimately, she was devastated physically, mentally, financially, and ultimately leaving behind, uh, as a single mom, a 10-year-old daughter. And, you know, that was really rough to see. And particularly when I recognized that it was a complete system failure, and I'd been a part of that system. And the way I was raised was, you know, if you see a problem and you don't do something about it, you're complicit. And so that really put me on this journey to really understand. I mean, I'd seen different dysfunctions in healthcare and and I just really dug in. If you ask why five times, you get to the root cause of just about everything. And, and you know, to make a long story short there, the way we purchase healthcare in this country is radically flawed to be charitable. And that leads to a multitude of issues that I'm sure we'll talk about. Well, I appreciate you sharing that backstory. And I'm getting chills as you talked about just the reason why you came into recognizing this problem. And it sounds like a very personal story for you. And so I can let you know that we have a very personal story for why we do the work that we do as well. And part of that comes back to making sure that we're leaving the best legacy for the people who come after us, because none of us are going to be here forever. I personally had a very close brush with death about 18 months ago came out of absolutely nowhere, had no idea that it was going to happen after I gave birth to my daughter. I almost died. And because of that, it's really set us in my family on a trajectory to make sure that our kids have absolutely everything that they need so that we can continue on our legacy of what we want through them, no matter what happens to us. And that also plays into life insurance, which is a huge piece of what we do. But today specifically, we're going to be talking about not only this very close to the vest concept of our health and our livelihood, but how can we make sure that we're getting the best in that area and also not having that be a money leak, which would be something that is additional costs that we're paying for something that we don't need to pay as much as we are. And we can find a way to improve the service, improve the quality of care, improve what we're getting for less cost. And we're not just sacrificing the value, but we're looking at a way to keep more of the money that we make so that we can truly grow wealth. So all of that. Bruce, do you have anything that you want to jump in on? Well, Dave, um, I know you probably have a rhythm to um, uh, educate uh, different listeners. Uh, and at, at the risk of upsetting that rhythm, I'd like to ask you a few things. Um, you know, I've been a business owner for a while now and healthcare costs are um, just staggering when, as a part of it, uh, the insurance part of it. And I've been fascinated um, at the attempt to improve healthcare costs over the last five, six years with um, the, um, the mandate um, actually caused my own business to average about 23.5% increase in my insurance cost over the last five years. And what we are, we're attempting to do here at The Money Advantage is to help business owners think out, outside the box and creatively to, to take care of their healthcare costs. 
And uh, there's a variety of, of things that we have resources to help them. And I'm, I'm so glad you, you came on. Um, my problem with all of this, and, and, I'm, and I don't want to get too political, but it's, it's actually part of the politics, both of the right and the left side, is, you know, what is on everybody's mind right now is the COVID-19 epidemic or pandemic, excuse me. And, and yet we don't hear anything in the news. We hear about mask mandates. We hear about social distancing. We hear all about that, but we don't hear anything about in, improving our immune system uh, to take care of the response, you know, through proper exercise and diet. And that seems to be a problem in our entire healthcare system is, is that we are not trying to actually make people healthier by lifestyle choices, but we're trying to make them healthier through uh, prescriptions. Um, and that seems to be a big driver in the monetary process of this whole thing. So um, that's, I was hoping we would cover some of that today in, in your process. Yeah, yeah, no, and, and I'm happy to jump all around. So don't worry about that. Okay, okay. Um, yeah, I mean, I look at COVID is sort of a super spreader event of a set of pre-existing conditions that exist inside of our country and our communities. And they really shine a light. And, and to just touch briefly on uh, Rachel's situation, because we're going to talk a lot about costs, and that's obviously important. Um, but I want to really emphasize that the best healthcare is often the least expensive healthcare. Mm -hmm. And your, your experience, of course, I don't know about the specifics, Rachel, but I will tell you that unlike every other developed nation, uh, our maternal mortality rate has gotten worse over the last 20 years. Um, yes. And it's it's just horrific. And now there's a couple places like California and South Carolina that have been doing some things about it, but it shows you where our priorities are in our healthcare system when we're actually getting worse where the rest of the world has been getting better over the last 20 years. So mm -hmm. just want to mention that, that we, we are very focused in on quality. Um, but to, to Bruce's point, um, you're right. You know, the, if you look at the, the dynamic going on, the, the people who have the most compromised health going into COVID are the ones who are dying at the highest rates, right? People mm -hmm. with so-called comorbidities. And if you look at that, that's a, that's a real issue. Um, one of the things, you know, again, we're going to talk a lot about costs. Um, but I would, really want to clarify one thing that there is a huge difference between costs and prices because costs have been flat in healthcare for at least a decade. Talk to any doctor, nurse. Um, the only real exception to that is in some specialty drugs. So nurses and doctors, they're not paid fundamentally different. The inputs into healthcare are not fundamentally different. It's the prices that are different because um, healthcare isn't expensive. Clinicians are only getting 27 cents of every dollar that we're ostensibly spending on healthcare. And mm. so sometimes people are kind of shocked, like when we have many case studies where people are spending 20, 30, even 55% less per capita with superior benefits and no out-of-pocket co costs for the employees. And they're like, how do you do that? Well, you get rid of all this garbage that the part that's expensive about healthcare is profiteering, price gouging, administrative bloat, and outright fraud. And I mean, just fraud alone, um, 
you know, the Accenture and FBI estimated this is almost a decade. It was $300 billion. And as I go into my book, there's a reason why the fraud prevention is so pathetic in healthcare versus financial services, because guess whose money is at risk? Our money, not the carriers. Um, and so fraud, oddly enough, is basically biz- good for the business model of carriers. And specifically, as we talk about COVID, just to give you an idea of how upside down our system is, in the midst of this pandemic, like none of us, none of us have seen in our lifetimes, uh, there are medical practices, particularly primary care, that are shutting down financially um, because of what's happened. At the same time, the mega carriers have had the biggest uh, earnings that they've had in, you know, maybe ever, they're doing incredibly well because the volume of healthcare has actually gone down dramatically. You know, certainly during the shutdowns, um, it's gone down. But, you know, they're master marketers. They're making you think that um, the costs are going up. They're not. Um, the prices are going up. And again, I get into the details of how they do that, why they do that. I mean, there's good people inside of those organizations, but they're operating inside of a, a set of perverse incentives that lead to this dynamic. And, and you know, you mentioned, you know, the last five years, really the last 10 years, the, the increases have gone up even higher because of, um, you know, a clause in the, um, uh, the ACA that sort of turbocharged a pre-existing dynamic. And so if you look at the stock prices of the carriers over the last decade, I mean, this is right there with Amazon in terms of returns. So that's kind of how upside down our industry is right now. That's just so, so many interesting thoughts right there. Um, We could unpack this for a really long time. So um, let's go ahead and first kind of break out what is the difference between health insurance costs and health care costs? Yep. Uh, most of what we think of as healthcare are predictable, budgetable items, um, particularly over enough lives. You have a thousand lives, certainly 10,000 lives. You can have a certain number of primary care visits and surgeries and cancers and all that type of thing. That is basically a budgetable thing. The actual insurance component is only about 15 to 20%, you know, for the rare cancers, the premature babies, these type of things. That's actually the truly insurable events. You know, it's interesting because you ask, you ask people sometimes, where do you get your health care? And they say, oh, you know, Blue Cross. You know, it would be like saying, what car do you drive? Geico. You know, it's just like we right. confuse these two things. Um, and so the actual insurable events are a fairly small portion of that. Um, and again, some of that's gone up because of specialty drugs and some things. But again, that's only on the 15% of the spend or so. So that's where the big difference is. And so as employers, um, you have that, once you have that insight, like I was talking to a CFO of a manufacturer, about 750 employees, they took their healthcare spending from over $8 million to under $3.5 million. Wow, how did you do that? Well, it goes back to the get rid of all the, the garbage. And what that meant for that business I asked him, it's like, you know, you were a you know slow growth, mature manufacturing, um, you know, low margin. What would you have had to increase top line sales to have the same EBITDA 
impact as what you did in healthcare because they took you know four and a half to five million to the bottom line on a recurring basis. Like we would have had to increase top line sales revenue twenty five to thirty percent. Like mm-hmm. how hard is that? Um, hands down, the the chapter of my first book, the CEO's Guide to Restoring the American Dream, uh, that resonated the most with business owners and business leaders was one that said, you're in the healthcare business, whether you like it or not, you know, here's how to make it thrive. Cause it's often the second or third biggest cost for most, uh, most businesses. And they aren't managing it like they do every other thing that they procure care for. So we can talk more about that, but that's a few points I'd make. Oh, that's very, very fascinating. And one point that I just really want to highlight is the idea that in any area of your financial life, making more money is a good goal and you want to always be providing more value and increasing your top line revenue. But if you can keep more of the money that you're already making, you're light years ahead. You are light years ahead. That is a little more clear way of saying that. By having more to work with and focusing on something that's even a little bit easier to do and easier to control rather than increasing the top line revenue. It doesn't matter how much you increase the revenue if you're still not keeping any of the money that you make. So um, Bruce, do you have any where that you want to go before I jump into the next question? Well, yeah, Dave, Dave, I would really like to know your perspective on, you know, the simple ways that business businesses could, could actually um, tackle these healthcare costs you know, going forward. And I'm sure they are outlined in your book, but if you can give us some, some tip, uh, tidbits of, of how you see that. Yeah, we, we have a five-step uh, plan that it spells out an acrostic local because a lot of what we talk about is relocalizing health. I mean, what's more local than an interaction between a doctor and a patient, yet at least half of the dollars are getting hoovered out of local economies to basically Wall Street. Um, and so the local, the first thing is leave, you know, learn how to leave behind status quo mindset. It's just a mindset shift. A lot of people think healthcare solving this like trying to solve Middle East peace. Like that's what the status quo protectors would like you to think. It's not true. Um, so that's a lot of why I wrote the book. Uh, the O in local is optimized plan and structure. This is the boring stuff, but it's like how you pay your broker, how things are disclosed, who processes your claims, all that kind of stuff. We've seen employers get up to $1,000 per employee per year of savings without changing anything else that I'll go into. And a lot of people are concerned about, you know, changing things on their uh, employees. And in this five-step process, four of the five steps are either invisible to the employee or only clear positive value add. So the first thing that gets into the care, really low-hanging fruit is the C is carve out PBM. PBM stands for pharmacy benefit managers. Most people don't even know these companies exist. The big three that control 80 plus percent of the market are in the Fortune 50. Not to let pharma off the hook, but there's not one pure pharma company in the Fortune 50. Johnson & Johnson is the only company in the Fortune 50 and they've got a bunch of other businesses. And they've managed to create 32 different revenue streams for themselves that people have no idea about. Um, and so that's, there's a lot of low hanging fruit there. You don't even have to change your formulary where you get your drugs. You can get huge savings there. Um, the AM local is add value-based primary care. There's no well-functioning healthcare system in the world, not built on proper primary care. 50% of, um, 
ER visits, for example, are not emergencies. People just go there because they can't get into proper primary care because essentially we've destroyed primary care in this country over the last couple of decades. And so there's more to say about that, but that's a big one. And then the L, the second L is leave behind value extracting PPO networks. PPO networks is preferred provider organizations. This is like, you know, you have a, a fancy logo on your health insurance card that gives you access. It's just become a glorified yellow pages that gives you the privilege of wildly overpaying. Typically, these things um, get the employers to spend two, three, even 10 times Medicare rates, which cover costs for healthcare providers. That's where the biggest savings are. That's actually where you have to be the most careful. That's the first one that the employees will notice. Now, if you do it right, they notice it in a good way. Like with Pacific Steel, that company I mentioned, um, they provided a concierge that kind of guides them through. And they said, you go to a high value care provider, we'll waive all cost share. Um, and people don't have to be healthcare experts to understand zero. And it's often the same doctor, just a different setting. Um, so those are the, the high level steps that get you there. And some people will rip off the bandaid, do it all at once. Most will take it step by step, maybe over two or three years. So I was excited to talk to you this week because I was just recently um, approached by somebody that knew about what I did and worked with a lot of business owners. And they said, we think we could help you with your business owner's healthcare costs. And uh, they gave me a couple of high level things. And one of the things that you just mentioned was um, the Medicare rate or paying off the Medicare rates. And they actually negotiate this. And I'm like, I didn't know this actually existed. Yeah. You know, um, well, I didn't and, either. And I know that there's a contracted rate that is usually paid by the insurance company. Is that different from the Medicare rate? Wildly different. Interesting. Um, yeah. So Medicare, you know, it, healthcare providers are required to re report their costs. And, you know, there's some regional differences. And then there's built some built in margin for them, despite, you know, some hospitals will say they lose money on Medicare. They and it's one of those areas where they have funny ways of describing losing money and saving money. So like if your, you know, premiums were going to go from, you know, say 5 million to 10 million and they only went up to 8 million, they'd call that 2 million of savings. That's not real savings. It's the same way that it's the same way the politicians do their budget. Yeah. They, yeah. And, well, it's and exactly so, the same way. Yeah. And so they, they, they don't make as much money. You know, and essentially baked into every business model in healthcare implicitly is that employers will stay asleep at the wheel forever. It's been a really good bet for a long time. Um, but yeah, there's uh, like in the case of Pacific Steel, what they did to have that steep decline, it was about three quarters of it was reduction in medical spending, about a quarter on the drug side. And on the medical claim side, they use Medicare as a benchmark. So they would go to a provider, you know, say, you know, Bruce has got to get a, you know, rotator cuff procedure, you know, not an emergency thing. And they'll say, hey, we'd like to go here. Um, we have a very simple agreement. You know, we'll pay 120% of Medicare rates or 160% of Medicare rates. So it'll still be above that. And we'll promptly pay. You don't have to wait months for it. And we're going to waive all cost sharing if Bruce goes here versus another place. And they're like, whoa, sign me up. They did 5,000 direct contracts in two years. Um, these are incredibly simple two-page agreements. Because Medicare is so well-established, people understand them. 
for a lot of the independent uh, surgery centers and doctors, it's actually giving them a pay increase, even though the overall spending went down so much for the employer. And you know what the best part about this story, though, is this happened to be an employee stock owned company. So, mm. you know, a more profitable company is a bigger nest egg. There was a, a forklift driver, worked there 30 years, topped out at $45,000 a year. I can't give you the, the specific thing because I'm sort of scoring the secrecy, but let me just say well into seven figure nest egg for a working class individual. That had doubled basically because of the value of the enterprise went up so much with this recurring kind of $5 million, almost $5 million uh, boost in the profits because that just went right to the bottom line. Wow. So fascinating. Now, Bruce, was there something else on what you were saying? I yeah. didn't want to take away the point yeah. you were saying about learning. Well, I don't know if, if there's something else, but I am curious of uh, how um, this new trend towards concierge doctor services <laughs> works into this. And my wife and I are actually considering doing that. And then also, how do, you mentioned about farm, uh, pharmacy. How do these companies like you see on television all the time, good RX? Yep. You know, where the where the lady goes in and the, and the drug is $69 and she gives them this good RX and it's like $4. I mean, how, first of all, how can this actually be a moral uh, situation in this situation? And and actually, how does that company, good RX, you know, make money to be able to provide these services? Yeah. Um, well, first of all, on the concierge piece, um, they're, they're, that actually was started in Seattle. It's kind of interesting where at the same time concierge medicine was started, it was actually the former Seattle Supersonics team doctor who realized, gosh, you know, there's people because they, they went to extreme lengths to keep the NBA players healthy. They're like, you know what? There's other people who don't want to miss work and want to stay healthy. They're called, you know, high net worth individuals. So that, that was kind of one path um, where it was very expensive, high touch. Um, you know, marble lobbies, you know, terry cloth robes rather than you know, all that type of thing. But there's basically concierge medicine for the masses, which is called direct primary care. Um, and that's been growing gangbusters over the last five, 10 years. That's what we like to see employers put in. And so it just, it basically, you pay them sort of like a gym membership, just a monthly set fee. So they have no incentive to like get you the high margin stuff because typically the reason why hospitals acquire primary care is they're you know kind of milk in the back of the store. You get in there and a typical doc can drive 10 to $14 million of referral value, a primary care doc. And so you really want an independent um, primary care doc that doesn't have those perverse incentives. Um, and then when you talk about the drug side, um, you know, we could do a whole episode on all the money games and how the money flows. Um, and uh, so good RX is sort of a band-aid on that, you know, because there's a lot of different wet contracts out there and different amounts that are paid. Um, you know, Walmart's got their $4, um, you know, prescriptions. Costco's incredibly affordable. Um, and so, you know, again, that would be a longer story to get, get into all the 32 different revenue streams that they create. When like Caterpillar, you know, is a large employer, they really applied their supply chain expertise to drug procurement starting about a dozen years ago. Because of that, really, that's the only thing they've done in their health benefits. They haven't seen overall healthcare spending 
at Caterpillar for their employees go up in over a decade because that just gives you an idea of all the shenanigans that are going on there. And, and here's the backdrop. It's an important one I think everybody should take away. And this is what the employers that are having success, this is part of the mindset shift because they all say employees are our most valuable asset, right? Who hasn't heard a CEO say that? Well, if, if they're your most important asset and the health plan that you've been giving them has led to 20 years plus of wage stagnation decline for the working middle class, by the way, that's defined as economic depression. That's why we have a lot of the nuttiness going on in that country. Um, you know, that's something where, and guess what? If there's one thing that we're the undisputed world leaders in, it's the opioid crisis. What paid for that? Employer health plans, working age uh, people and their dependents overwhelmingly are the ones impacted by the opioid crisis. And we can go into what led to those perverse incentives and all that. You know, it, you know, lower back pain is a great example of how badly we botch it. You know, second most common reason people go to the doctor, number one driver of disability, number one driver of opioid prescription. Guess how much evidence there is that opioids are effective for lower back pain? Not a zero. Um, yet that's what our system has driven. At best, they'll mask some short-term pain while the underlying issue persists. So it's those type of things that if you say, okay, this is our most important asset, like all other areas in procurement, it is a privilege for you, healthcare industry, to serve our most important asset. We are going to purchase in this way. Would you like to play? Um, it shifts a supply-centric industry to a demand-centric industry. You don't see Boeing saying, hey, we're going to build a plane, bring us your parts. You know, they spec out what they want very clearly, you know, General Electric and um, uh, Rolls-Royce, you know, provide jet engines and things like that to their specs. It just, that's the way it works. We just kind of shut off that side of our business mind when it comes to healthcare and we just need to turn that back on. Well, it's interesting. I mean, there's so much, so much packed in here. So one of the things that you mentioned is that this, healthcare industry has failed to evolve over time, whereas our world is evolving. And I can see that knowing the health insurance landscape a little bit, there's few carriers and fewer and fewer health insurance provider carriers. We've seen costs go up. I mean, even this past year, 23% wasn't uncommon for most people seeing their, their overall costs rising. And that's just one year. And then you look at things as a whole, it it feels like, well, the options are, you know, you look at an HMO plan, a PPO, uh, possibly doing an HSA with the major carriers, and that seems like the only option. You're talking about something that feels completely outside of that, that range of what most people are presented as the full spectrum of options. So how do we not only make that shift, but who is this accessible to and where do they find this other way of being, I think you were talking about direct primary care. Yeah. I mean, unfortunately, everybody's been put in a box, which you described, and you're basically in this box with the lights out, you know, and you can't see anything. Everything is obfuscated. And so we get them out of that box. Um, and <clears throat> what we did, you know, the nonprofit that I started, um, we drew some insights from what happened in the built environment with LEAD, where 
they accredited professionals like architects. So we accredit professionals. You could call them the architects of health plans. Our people called benefits consultants or benefit brokers or benefit advisors. And what has happened in financial services where you all may remember stockbrokers, you know, largely went the way of the dodo bird. The smart ones reinvented themselves as financial and wealth advisors, better disclosure, better alignment. We're, we're at the front end of that shift. So the great benefit advisors, um, we've had 1,500 apply to our program, 214 have made it through, and they pledge to honor what we call plan sponsor bill of rights. So plan sponsor is kind of an umbrella term for an employer or union or whoever's paying the bill. Um, an advisor, benefit advisor code of conduct, and an advisor disclosure form. Now, if you're outside the healthcare industry and you look at these things, you're like, well, gee, that looks like motherhood and apple pie. What's the news here? Well, unfortunately, it's a 180 from the norm in the industry. Typically, the brokers are paid more the worst job they do because they'll get paid a commission, for, especially for small businesses. So the more your rates go up, yay, they got a raise. Um, and you know, it's obviously boo for the business. Um, so you have to, you know, people always ask, what's the first thing you got to do? Um, like you got to get the right aligned advisor. That's why it's the tip of the spear of our movement. And you can go to healthrosetta.org slash map. We put them in the map or just email us. We'll help match make you, um, with somebody who's aligned and who it's applicable to everybody. Um, we're a tiny organization. We've got seven people on our health plan. We certainly are more constrained than a larger employer. Um, but essentially we still can have the same basic blueprint. What's our health plan? We build on the foundation of primary care. So everybody gets direct primary care. If it's not available in your market, like where I live, there's virtual primary care. Um, so that's the foundation. Then we have, we essentially, you know, to use industry terms, we essentially self-insure for claims a thousand to $6,500. We're a tiny self-funded bootstrapped organizations. You know, that's what we can afford. And then above that, um, we have a very high deductible um, health plan, which kind of operates in the equivalent of a stop loss for a larger employer reinsurance. And this year is the first year we've ever had a claim actually go above our self-insurance because we had um, we have an individual who got MS. MS. So mm. you know we're not going to get financially ruined as a business because we have that insurance. Um, and oh, by the way, we've got a you know, drug coverage as well. Um, and so we have, you know, an ethical organization that doesn't play all the games. And in all cases, we get access to our data. You know, what business that's proud of what they're doing suppresses the data about their, their service? That's the norm in healthcare. And there's, a, there's all kinds of smoke and mirrors that they'll use. But it's like, again, what other business would hide the data if they were really doing a great job? Mm -hmm. So if you can't get the data, you're blind, you're, you're in that box with the lights out. Dave, I want to hit on a point for our listeners and people watching that I don't think uh, people understand enough. And you brought this up is that, you know, for any typical business, they have a, they have an amount that they can actually use for employee benefits, which include wages. Yeah. And people uh, have, have this, have this mindset that they, that oh yeah, but I don't get I don't make as much, but I am I do have really good health uh, insurance. In their minds, it's really good health insurance. However, that health insurance keeps taking bigger bigger parts of the pie, 
which has suppressed wage growth, as you mentioned, over the years, they they don't realize how much of that benefit is only a benefit to them if they use it. Yes. So they're really not getting an, an additional um, compensation if they're not using it. And what's ironic on all this is if you do uh, consider yourself to keep yourself healthy, you're actually giving up even more of your compensation to somebody else. Yeah, I was just going to say it penalizes the person who owns their own health as opposed to the one who goes to the doctor all the time. Yeah. And so I did that. Was, that wasn't a question or anything, but that, I just wanted to reemphasize that point for our listeners, because we're always trying to to find it, get, get people to think differently. Like you, you mentioned, that's, yeah. you know, I, I, we have this right here on a think differently, you know, yeah. because we are programmed by big pharma, by industry leaders in every category of financial services to think a certain way. And I loved how you started out the uh, podcast by saying, you know, oh, it's so complicated. You really need us. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so let me, let me ask you a couple more questions. Um, first of all, I have a business owner who um, is approaching um, bigger businesses with more employees to say, hey, we can actually put a physical therapist uh, in your particular manufacturing plant um, at, at an exit of cost. And then uh, somehow they're, they're, they're then going to a higher deductible, like in self-insuring, like you're talking about. And even though they're paying that additional service for the physical therapist, they're finding that the employees aren't using as much of the healthcare and the self-insurance because they have access to this physical therapist. Um, so th- do you see any bigger organization actually going to hiring physicians and nurses to have full-time staff on site or at least available at, at their own clinic? They only work for them. Would that mm-hmm. make sense in this situation? Yeah, absolutely. There's a whole category of um, businesses that are in that business of providing that on behalf of employers. There's there's some employers that literally they're employees of the organization, but most commonly they contract with an organization like a Vera Whole Health and or a crossover, one of these that uh, provides it on site and and depends on the model. Like in the case of Vera, since I'm near Seattle, I'll use Seattle as an example. Vera uh, provides the health, um, the primary care for like the city of Kirkland, which is a suburb of Seattle, City of Everett, the Gates Foundation, Expedia, uh, Seattle Children's Hospital employees, Virginia Mason Hospital employees, Trident Seafoods, you know, and they have um, clinics, you know, either in their business or right by it. And the nice thing is, you know, in a metropolitan area, people live all over. Um, any one of those employees at any one of those organizations can go to any of the clinics of the others. So if they're, you know, they live in Kirkland, but they work down in Seattle, um, you know, the you know, spouse or whatever can go to that clinic in Kirkland and they really do a good job. In fact, you know, speaking of of Kirkland and COVID, that was the first um, locale in the state, you know, in the U.S. to have a COVID case. I don't know if you remember that. Hmm, Um, And yeah, that was the first place. It was the, the nursing home there. And it was actually, you know, one of the reasons Seattle didn't blow up in the same way that other cities did was actually the city of Kirkland has Vera. Um, the hospital there has something called 98.6, which is kind of a virtual text-based uh, primary care. Like 
they, they, that stuff was ready to go. And so they were on it right away. Um, and so you see the, the employees in the city of Kirkland, rather than that money that the, the equivalent of the HSA in the public sector is called the HRA VIBA. Um, they have millions of dollars sitting in the employee accounts that they can take through their entire lifetime that would have otherwise dis disappeared into the ether. Because what they did was they went to a high deductible plan. That's doing that alone actually worsens the situation, you know, and that's been the solution that a lot of the industries offered. They didn't do that alone. They then funded the HRA VIBA to that, um, you know, delta of their um, deductible. And so then it put it in their hands. And guess what? You know, they're, they become wiser consumers. And so they have those accounts and that's essentially adding to their, you know, their retirement fund, because even with Medicare, a typical couple will incur over $200,000 of medic medical expenses in retirement. So it's really nice to have that uh, there. So those are the types of things that, yeah, absolutely. And you mentioned PT. Do you know that 2% of the entire U.S. economy is tied up in non-evidence-based, non-value-add musculoskeletal procedures, which is essentially one of the main things that PT offers. And so it's typically- What was the percentage? 2% of the entire U.S. economy. Wow. Because um, generally, I mean, the, the rough math is, you know, healthcare is about 20% of GDP. Um, musculoskeletal is about- um, 20% of spending. So it'd be about uh, 4%. And then half of that 2% is non-evidence-based. You know, to their credit, Virginia Mason did a study with um, Starbucks employees, um, and it's been replicated elsewhere, where they found that 90% of the spinal procedures they were doing didn't help at all. PT would have been more effective. Again, in our perverse incentive, that actually hurt their bottom line to do the right thing. Um, by not doing unnecessary spinal procedures, but that's extremely common. You know, so you have insane levels of opioid prescriptions and insane level of spinal procedures that neither have evidence behind them versus, you know, having PT. Maybe the PT comes by once a, once a week. We've seen that with a chicken processor. They're a bigger organization, like a large multinational tire manufacturer. They've got full-time PT on there. The Rosen Hotels, it's a was in the TED talk that you listened to. They got a full-time PT that's not only in clinic, but goes out into the workplace and teaches people about proper back health and stretching and, you know, things like that. And you can get incredible savings and the well, I mean, I'm one of those people, 80% of adults will have an acute back episode. It's awful. feels like there's a knife in your back. Um, you know, if you're told the pill is going to solve it, like, okay, give me it, you know, told the surgery is going to solve it. Okay. Cut me, you know, but if you actually have the right model, like, no, Dave, you know, you may think you don't want to move because when you moved it triggered, like, no, you actually need to do these movements. You can get immediate relief, not hundred percent relief, but you can start on that uh, journey um, much better than all these other crazy things that we're doing. 
So this, oh my goodness, this is so fascinating. And honestly, you're talking about back pain. I mean, I personally have had back pain. I uh, come from a family of chiropractics and I've had friends who've had the back surgery from neurologists. So when I, when you're talking about an opioid crisis, I mean, this is something that, I mean, I, I have not been aware of that type of uh, abuse of opioids in terms of back pain, but at the same time, I can understand and viscerally feel in my body why somebody would choose that. And yet at the same time, how does things like supplementation and health, true healthcare prevention and chiropractics and things like, like that, how does that play into this type of a health model? Yeah. Um, the thing I'll say there is um, I'm hundred percent for those. I live for those. Um, they are awesome and great. That's not where you're going to get big near-term cost savings on like diet, nutrition stuff, it pays off over the long term. So if you're committed long term, you'll get mm-hmm. that payoff. So you look at a Rosen, they do have an on-site clinic that has PT, dietitian, health coach, um, chiropractor, uh, pharmacist. You know, a fully actualized primary care has all those things, behavioral health. You know, there's a lot of, particularly now during COVID, um, yes. a lot of mental health issues. And sometimes mental health issues manifest themselves as physical pain. And so if you have the right um, kind of triage process, you're like, oh, you know, it's actually, you make, because people, you know, a lot of the reason why people go to the doctor is pain, understandably so. Mm-hmm. And it, with the right triage, like, you know, that's actually a mental health issue. Let's walk you down the hall to our behavioral health specialist and address that. Um, and so, you know, again, at the same time, you know, I mentioned the dietitian at Rosen, they subsidize healthy food in their workplace. I mean, those are all awesome things. Don't get me wrong. Um, but if you're talking about near-term cost savings, there's a lot easier money to find just in getting rid of price gouging and profiteering. Um, sure. And then again, if you really value your employees and you value a high performance workforce, the proper primary care that includes things like mental health services and PT makes a massive difference. So this sounds to me almost like a utopia of uh, an amazing world where not only is the employer saving costs, yep. they're getting better health care. The, from what I'm understanding, you're saying is the health, the, um, the employer is paying less costs, but the cost that they are paying instead of just paying health insurance, they're paying something for what might be uh, a different word to use as our typical way of thinking about health insurance. And then they're funding that um, the self-insurance up until the stopgap. And so overall they're paying less getting better quality of care. Am I understanding correctly? And if so, how in the world do we take the first step to get into that utopia where you're talking about having uh, those, those healthcare providers and clinics based just for your organization? Yeah, I mean, it's funny you mentioned the utopia because I kind of early in this journey, I had come to this conclusion where as I really dug in, I was like, wow, on the one hand, you look at the status quo where it's a dystopian reality. We've got the opioid crisis. We've got 20 years of wage stagnation decline. We've got miserable outcomes overall. And by the way, doctors and nurses have record levels of burnout and even suicide. Like this is dystopian. Yes. Um, and and then over here, like it's utopia by comparison. I'm like, this is easy, right? That's just a marketing problem. You know, of course, a challenging marketing problem. Who wouldn't want that? 
Um, mm-hmm. And so, yeah, it goes back to get the right advisor guide you through. And part of the process is diagnostic, like how fast do you want to move? Where is your workforce located? It's easier if there's a concentration of people in one place to do an on-site clinic. You got enough people, others are distributed. So you have different tools um, that say, you know, now going back to that local acrostic, you may like, okay, for sure, do they owe? Like get things right there. Um, nobody's going to notice it, but going to make a big difference. Watch claims, stuff like that. It's again, kind of boring stuff, but if you have the right person doing it, huge savings there. Um, and then you can just knock off. I mean, again, I'm a big believer in primary care. We, we walk the talk with our own health plan. Um, and in a fully realized primary care setting, like exists in some of these employers, like exists in places like Denmark, 90% of the issues that people come into the healthcare system for can be fully addressed in primary care. That's not what most people experience in the U.S. today. So whether you're mm-hmm. a small employer like we are, where we can access direct primary care, or you're a larger employer that, you know, typically if you have um, 500 to 1,000 employees, it can pencil out having in one location an on-site or near-site clinic. So again, it depends on your particular situation. Either way, you got to get great, great primary care. And it's one of those things where it's, it's, it's a shockingly positive benefit. In fact, there's some companies that can't afford the full, um, you know, like Blue Cross plan, you know, like restaurateurs and some like that. They're actually paying for primary care. They'll say, okay, we'll, you know, we'll cover this. That's all we can afford. And people still love it. And most of the time, that's all they need. So yeah, let's say, so babe, let's say uh, President-elect Biden calls you and says he's already been on record saying that, of course, politicians can be on record for saying anything, but he's mm-hmm. already been on record saying that he's not really for Medicare for all. So it would seem like this would be the, the next natural progression. And he says, I want you to be part of the cabinet and take care of this problem. How would you take care of this problem? Yeah, I mean, that's a long discussion, but I would, I would say a couple things. Um, one that's, that's a wonky, uh, thing, which is, um, you may have heard of, um, ERISA. ERISA was a legislation that passed during the Ford administration. It oversees retirement benefits and health benefits. And most of us are quite familiar with it on the retirement benefits. And, you know, we have investment committees and stuff like that to decide 401k plans. And there's, the, you know, fiduciary duty on behalf of your employees is one of the highest duties under law. Even though health benefits sit under it, it really hasn't been applied in the same way it's been applied on retirement benefits. So I'd say, you know, go out yourself or your secretary of labor say, we believe that ERISA fiduciary duty really applies. And, and essentially that's self-regulated reasonably well in the retirement benefit side. Cause if you go off the rails, there's class action attorneys who are going to put together classes. There's been cases that have gone to the Supreme Court on the retirement benefits stuff for, by comparison, penny ante stuff compared to the healthcare. So that'd be kind of the wonky thing. Number two, I would say you've got between four and five million federal employees. You're an employer. You know, there's four roles that government plays, and people almost for, always forget that role. You know, they're a regulator, they're a payer, they do public health. And the one they forget is they are an employer and they're getting just as bad a deal as everybody else. 
And so you've seen that in other areas. I mean, you know, government procures advanced battery technology that allows, you know, SEAL teams to go out there with, you know, long battery life, sometimes solar and, you know, things like that. We need to do it here. And I'd say that across the political spectrum, across to all the governors, like whatever your political philosophy is, I don't care whether you're the most radical or most progressive, put up or shut up, apply it with your employees in your state employee health plan uh, or your federal employee plan, and you can make the market. You look in Montana, um, Marilyn Bartlett, she took over the state employee health plan uh, for Montana. They were on track to have a big deficit, um, particularly for the size of state Montana was. It was going to, it was tracking towards a $9 million deficit. In a couple of years, it became a $110 million surplus. And it not only positioned them much better for COVID to have these reserves that most states don't have, um, but it was much better for the employees. They had, you know, she tackled primary care, she tackled opioids, she tackled price gouging. And, you know, for that, she was named one of the 50 world's greatest leaders last year in fortune magazine you know along with people like bill gates and you know she's just a tenacious grandma you know literally her her uh personal email which we trade messages tenacious grandma you know at blah 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 dot net um i mean and she is a a pistol um but it's totally solvable so that's what i'd say is like hey you don't have to do something new just do what others are doing and and then you prove it there, then you have you don't have to have some, you know, bogus, you know, or speculative academic study on what this will cost or won't cost, whatever the policy might be. Um, and I'm always very, you know, we're a fiercely nonpartisan group. I say, you know, the Calvary is not coming from DC to mm-hmm. fix healthcare for you, employee uh, or employers. Um, we've had both parties in full control. Who thinks it's fixed, right? Um, but if you actually, as a political leader, want to fix it, you know, like state of New Jersey, again, interesting situation back when Christie was governor, you know, otherwise a democratically controlled state, they had a big deficit coming. So Christie was like, cut services, cut staff. The Democrats were like, raise taxes. There was a union backed think tank called America's agenda said, no, there's a third way. Let's tackle healthcare costs. Just in drug spending alone, in the first three years, they've saved a billion six with a B. Um, They also put in primary care. Um, So, you know, there's a lot of power that gets forgotten that the governments have with the power of the purchase. I don't think you need any legislation for, you know, the, the basically the personnel department, you know, procurement department of the government to do it right. Um, And so we have the blueprints. We have examples all over the country. Some are quite large, some are micro like ours and everything in between. We haven't seen a setting. It doesn't work. Rural, urban, small, large, public, private. So get a backbone, make it happen. That is fascinating. And again, I think we could see any change that we could potentially imagine from the higher up or from government authority. But at the same time, what I'm hearing you say is take that ownership personally of your own responsibility, cut the cost and figure out how to improve the value. And it sounds like you guys are doing a fabulous job of helping people do this. So how does somebody get in touch with you and what 
are you able to provide to them at Health Rosetta? Yeah. So, you know, you can just go to healthrosetta.org and we can, you know, we have programs for employers. We have programs for advisors. You can download my books for free there, you know, in a PDF version, you can go buy it if you want. That's great too. Um, like when you, um, my latest book is just at healthrosetta.org slash relocalizing for relocalizing health is the name of the book. And it'll send you a series of emails that will kind of break it down week by week, you know, so you can get educated on that. Um, one of the things we do that I touched on earlier of the healthrosetta.org slash map is there's advisors in your area, but you can just reach out to us um, and we'll do our, you know, you give us some insight in terms of where you are, type of business, what your appetite is, and then we'll do some matchmaking if you'd like. Um, so we're happy to do that. Um, your options, I will say your options are much um, greater when you have over 50 employees. It's a lot easier there. On the other hand, when you're under 50, you're not subject to regulations. Um, so you can do some very creative stuff like what we've done. So it can be done. Um, it just, it's definitely easier if you're over 50 employees. Um, so yeah, those would be some of the things. And, you know, you can follow me on LinkedIn or Twitter. I'm at Chase Dave on just about everything. Um, and so we put out a lot of content. We have programs, we have summits, we get together. They're virtual right now. We've got regular webinars. Um, and so we can kind of meet you wherever you're at in that journey. Most people want to get educated a little bit, uh, but some are like, oh my gosh, we got, I mean, we had this with a manufacturer in rural part of Washington, basically where Kurt Cobain grew up and kind of grunge music started, you know, kind of an economic depressed area. They had a 50% uh, premium increase. And like, ah, like this is going to kill us and our employees. We, you know, rip off the mandate. And this is just a 60 person company rather than a 55% rate increase. That next year, their claims, their healthcare spending went down 600,000. That's a lot of money for a 60 person company. Mm -hmm. And so, um, again, we'll meet you where you're at, uh, point you towards the right resources. And uh, again, it just takes will. And, and if you have the will, you can, you'll, we will find the way. Well, that's excellent. And Bruce, I'll, I'll wrap us up. Do you have anything you want to share before we do that? I need another uh, couple of hours with Dave. Uh, I know, right? <laughs> yeah, it's wonderful. Thank, thank Dave. We're seriously, I mean, thank, thank you, thank you, thank you for this because I this is the kind of value that we want to bring to our business listeners. And um, like I said, it's kind of kismet because um, I have this appointment with this uh, group here in St. Louis uh, to talk about this and um, um, getting getting creative. Is what is what entrepreneurs do to solve problems. Unfortunately, a lot of entrepreneurs are so busy in working on the airplane while it's flying that they often do not take the time to do this until, like you said, you get the fifty-five percent rate increase, and then they think it's serious. Well, and there's actually a great advisor in St. Louis named Adam Berkowitz, and he's been working with. I think it's Bio St. Louis, which is kind of a, mm -hmm. um, they've kind of broadened just beyond bio, but they're really focused in on working with employers. So there's actually some really good stuff going on in St. Louis, just as an aside. Great. That's fascinating. And this whole conversation has just been really eye-opening to me. I thought we were jumping into a small conversation, which ended up being a much grander scale than I had anticipated. And at the same time, it's just fascinating to have your lid taken off in any capacity when you think about 
the limits and the constraints that we have around us and our mental constructs and you just kind of completely blew that box apart and said there is so much better way. So even though we have talked about this grand topic today, health insurance is just one small part of a bigger picture. And we've alluded to this a little bit before. We want to not only keep more of the money that you make, then protect that money and then turn that into cash flowing assets. Ultimately, you want to be on a trajectory and a journey to building time and money freedom, where you have an income stream from assets that exceeds not only your bare bones living expenses, but anything that you could want and imagine in your life. And that is the ultimate end goal so that you can truly make the greatest contribution. And so if you are an independent minded wealth creator, you're thinking differently, you're willing to be challenged to think differently about your financial resources and about how to do that, we would really love to have a personal conversation with you. And you can book a call with our advisor team at themoneyadvantage.com slash calendar. If you just go to the money advantage, you will find everything that you need there. We talk about privatized banking, we talk about alternative investments, and we talk about cash flow strategies like this one. But this is one of a cash flow strategy that is tremendously amazing. We talk about others as well to increase the money that you keep. Now, I also want to make sure that you know that we thank you for listening. Please rate and review us on iTunes, and we'd love to hear your questions as well. You can send them over to us at hello at themoneyadvantage.com, or you can send us a voice message by going to The Money Advantage and clicking on the link at the top that says, send us a voicemail, and we'd love to play your questions on air and answer them. Thank you so much for being with us, and we look forward to next time. In closing, success leaves clues. So model the successful few, not the crowd, and build a life and business you love. Discover the secret of how to earn a return on the same money in two places at the same time so that you can strengthen your investment returns. We've created a free guide for you that explains the top three things every investor needs their privatized banking system to do. Go to themoneyadvantage.com slash banking, put in your name and primary email address, click the send my free guide button right now and we'll see you on the inside. Thank you for listening to the Money Advantage podcast. Today's show notes and resources are available for you on themoneyadvantage.com. If you like this episode, make sure you subscribe and leave a review. If you have any questions or desire to speak with a qualified financial professional after listening to today's podcast, we encourage you to reach out to us at hello at themoneyadvantage.com or check us out at themoneyadvantage.com. The opinions and views expressed here are for informational purposes only. This material is educational in nature and should not be deemed as a solicitation of any specific product or service. All investments involve risk and a potential loss of principal. Kalos Capital Incorporated nor Kalos Management Incorporated offer tax or legal advice. Please consult with a tax advisor or attorney for advice regarding the impact on your portfolio. Securities offered through Kalos Capital Incorporated member FINRA, SIPC, MSRB, and investment advisory services offered through Kalos Management Incorporated and registered investment advisor, both located at 11525 Parkwood Circle, Alpharetta, Georgia. E3 Consultants Group is not an affiliate or subsidiary of Kalos Capital Incorporated or Kalos Management Incorporated.